This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Open your Bibles, please, to Daniel chapter 2. And thank you so much for being here tonight. As we said last week, Daniel chapter 2 deals with Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's first great prophetic dream of the great metallic image concerning the times of the Gentiles. We looked at chapter 2, 1 through 16 last week and read it through where Nebuchadnezzar had a very, very strange and amazing dream. And he was greatly troubled because he didn't know what it meant. And he called all of his best minds into the court, all the magicians and Chaldeans and soothsayers and all of the royal counselors, uh, but they uh, were not able to interpret the dream. He gave him a very hard test. He said, I want you to tell me what the dream was. And then I'll know if you can tell me what the dream was, then you can interpret it. And they said, that's impossible. Nobody could do that. And, um, and then he got very upset and furious. And he said, you're all going to be executed. And he was very angry. And uh, that's kind of where we left it last week. I shared with you what my daughter Wendy said to me some years ago. She said, Dad, what's uh, China's version of Ripley's Believe It or Not? She said, it's believe it or else. And I think Babylon was a lot like China in that respect. Um, and uh, it pretty well was Nebuchadnezzar's word was law. <laughs> and so the wise men were in trouble. And uh, though Daniel wasn't there, he was in trouble too. And uh, we'll pick up the, um, uh, the events in a little bit in verse 17. But I want us to look again at verses 10 and 11. Now it is true that the king might have thought, well, you claim to be in touch with the gods. And so if this is beyond human ken, yet they should still be able to give you the interpretation and, so, and, and tell you what the dream is. But they said, it's impossible. No king has ever asked this of any magician or soothsayer to tell you the dream of your head as well as interpret it. But he felt if they come, would try to come up with some uh, interpretation that would try to make sense and buy time. And so he wanted to know whether they really could tell him the dream and the interpretation. But they said, that's impossible. Notice what they said in verses 10 and 11. The Chaldeans answered before the king and said, there is not a man upon the earth that can show the king's matter. Therefore, there is no king, lord, nor ruler that asks such things at any magician or astrologer or Chaldean. And it is a rare thing that the king requires, and there's none other that can show it before the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. They regard it as axiomatic. They just naturally assume it's a well-known truth that nobody could tell somebody what the dreams of his own head were on his bed at night unless they didn't dwell with flesh, they were divine. And they seem to simply assume that the gods don't dwell with men on earth. They're kind of uh, occupied in their own world and uh, don't want to be too bothered with mankind. So when you read, except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh, it's the idea that it would be unthinkable that the gods would ever want to enter into our life on a daily basis and interact with us. And then my thinking goes to that great Christmas text in the Gospel of John, John 1.14, and the Word. That Word that was with God and was God and was in the beginning with God and made all things in whom is life and the life is the light of men and the light shineth in darkness. It's that word that was made flesh at Christmas and dwelled among us. Wow. Or we think of Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple when he prayed in 1 Kings 8.27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? 
Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house which I have built it. It's unthinkable to think that God would dwell on earth with men since all of heaven can't contain him. The words of John Donne are so appropriate. Twas much that man was made like God before, but that God should be made like man, much more. I'm not sure whether I put that in the notes or not, but John Donne wrote, "'Twas much that man was made like God before, but that God should be made like man, much more. Imagine God became man at Christmas and dwelt among us. But he simply didn't dwell among us. As a result of Pentecost and personal Christian conversion, he dwells within us and makes our bodies his very temple. I like the way you anticipated that, Ms. Kim. Uh, he dwells within us. Uh, we read in 1 Corinthians 6.19, uh, what, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? You see, God sent his son into the world at Christmas. And he sent his spirit into our hearts at conversion. I love the way Paul puts it in Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman. That's quite a thought, isn't it? Made of a woman he made. Made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. I like to think in this connection of the four C's. At creation, God made man. At Christmas, God was made man. At Calvary, God was made sin for man. That is a sin offering. And at conversion, God makes a man of God. So that if any man be in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. At creation, God made man. At Christmas, God was made man. At Calvary, God was made sin for man. At conversion, God makes a man of God. Now, I want you to also look at 2.12. For this cause, the king was angry and very furious, because the wise men could not tell him the dream, and commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. As one writer put it, his face was purple with rage. And it makes us think of Proverbs 16, 14, that the wrath of a king is as the messengers of death. Well, then we come to verses 17 through 23. Daniel's going to go in and ask permission of the king to give him time. And then he gets together with his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I love this expression, and they desire mercies of the God of heaven. They have a prayer meeting. They claim in advance Jesus' promise in Matthew 18, 19, that if two or three of you on earth shall agree as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of their Father which is in heaven. And they pray earnestly, and God reveals the secret to Daniel, and he praises God who is all wise and uh, all sovereign, for revealing the secret to them in the nick of time. And so we read in verses 17 through 23. Then Daniel went to his house and made the thing. Then Daniel went to his house and made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they would desire mercies of the God of heaven concerning this secret, that Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in the night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changeth the times and the seasons. 
it says that Antichrist will think to change the times and the seasons during the Great Tribulation, Daniel 7.25. That's an interesting passage. I look forward to getting into that with you. And he changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. He giveth wisdom to the wise. Jesus says, to him that hath more shall be given and he shall have abundance. But he that doesn't use what he has will lose even what he has. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. He revealeth the deep and secret things. He knoweth what is in the darkness, and the light dwelleth with him. I thank thee and praise thee, O thou God of my fathers, who hast given me wisdom and might, and hast made known unto me now what we desired of thee. For thou hast now made known unto us the king's matter. I like what Charles Hodge says. And in my studies of church history, I like to look for good quotes from different people of God. But it doesn't mean, of course, that I agree with everything they write. I don't even agree with myself sometimes. Uh, I do not uh, endorse Charles Hodge's Calvinism, but I think he had a lot of very good things to say, and so I just wanted to mention that. But Charles Hodge said, God's people rejoice that the Lord God omnipotent reigneth, that neither fate nor chance, nor the malice of Satan, nor the folly of man controls the events on this earth and all their issues. Amen. And how we look forward to that time when the seventh angel soundeth and there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And then a large section of the chapter, verses 24 through 45, involves Daniel telling Nebuchadnezzar what his dream is and interpreting it. And Nebuchadnezzar was very impressed, to say the least. <laughs> Beginning with verse 24. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had ordained to destroy the wise men of Babylon, he went and said thus unto him, Destroy not the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show unto the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste, and said thus to him, I have found the man of the captives of Judah that will make known unto the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen, and the interpretation thereof? Daniel answered in the presence of the king, and said, the secret which the king hath demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers show unto the king. Here's another great line in Daniel. But there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed, what should come to pass hereafter? And he that revealeth secrets maketh known to thee what shall come to pass. But as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living. But for their sakes that shall make known the interpretation to the king. And that thou mightest know the thoughts of thy heart. Thou, O king, sawest and behold a great image. This great image whose brightness was excellent stood before thee. And the form thereof is terrible. J. Vernon McGee writes, As Daniel began to describe the dream, I wish that I could have been there to see the expression on Nebuchadnezzar's face change from cynicism to unconcealed amazement. Now, I'm not sure I agree with Dr. Degree that Nebuchadnezzar was skeptical. I think Daniel did a pretty good job introducing his dream to win Nebuchadnezzar's confidence, but I still like the quote, and I could just imagine Nebuchadnezzar's jaw dropping when he hears the very thing he uh, saw, uh, that Daniel, as it were, had dreamed the same dream with him. And so he says, you saw this glorious metallic image. When we get to chapter 7, and Daniel sees these same, seven, these same four kingdoms that Nebuchadnezzar sees, Nebuchadnezzar sees them as 
a glorious metallic military image, bright and shining and impressive. Daniel sees those same kingdoms as wild beasts that come out of the sea and devour and destroy. It's very interesting that God gives the revelation to Nebuchadnezzar in terms of how he would see it. He sees the outward splendor. But Daniel, the man of God, sees all the rot and rapaciousness beneath. And you see, that's what happened in the wilderness of temptation. Satan took Christ into an exceeding high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them in a moment of time, thinking he'd sweep them off his feet. That was the Daniel 2 perspective. But Christ took the Daniel 7 perspective. He looked beneath all the glitter and tinsel to all the rot and corruption that was within that could not be covered over by all of the artificial worldly pomp and glory that passes away. And he saw the deep need of humanity and wanted to go to the cross more than ever to redeem the world so that someday when he came back, it would be worth ruling. <laughs> and we'll like to, we'd like to say more about that in Daniel 7. But he says, the image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. The head of gold represented the Babylonian empire headed up by Nebuchadnezzar that dominated world history and by and large oppressed Israel from the years 605 to 539 BC. The arms and breasts of silver represented the second kingdom, Medo-Persia, and it dominated world history and by and large oppressed Israel. Not totally oppressed them because it was under King Cyrus that Israel was able to return to the promised land and rebuild their temple. But in general, would oppress Israel from 539 to 331 BC. And then the uh, thighs of brass, that represented the third empire, Greece, headed up by Alexander the Great, which would, as far as Israel was concerned, dominate pretty much from around, there's a transition, but from around 331, let's say to 63 BC. For it was in 63 BC that the Roman general Pompey uh, conquered Israel and, um, and entered into the Holy of Holies with a brazen act of, um, of self-defiance. And Israel then came under Roman rule in 63 BC, although she had been pretty dominant in that part of the world for some decades later. But then you go to the fourth empire, the empire of iron, which is Rome. But Rome's gonna have a latter day revival in the end times. There are gonna be 10 kings in the West who are gonna give their allegiance to the Antichrist. And these 10 kings that give their allegiance to Antichrist are represented by the 10 toes. But while they're part of iron, they're also part of clay and they don't mix well. And I'm inclined to believe that we're seeing conditions like that even now leading into the tribulation. I believe that the iron and clay that don't mix well represent trying to combine autocracy and democracy. It's amazing how people want to rise up and be democratic, uh, like uh, what happened in Iran some years ago, a history of, of autocracy, but trying to be democratic, uh, democracies trying to uh, spring up here and there, but so much iron-fisted rule too. There's a strange combination in our world today of autocracies and democracies. And uh, apparently in the tribulation period, uh, Rome will try to hold a lot of different parts together, but they won't work together that well. And so there'll be a lot of autocracy and a lot of, um, uh, a lot of difficulty in keeping it all together, it, it would seem to me. And then he says, and this is exciting, Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and break them to pieces. That stone, which was cut out of a mountain without hands, represents Christ's messianic kingdom and his everlasting kingdom that will strike the image in its final form, the revived Roman Empire under Antichrist at Armageddon, at the second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation, and totally destroy it. As John Phillips eloquently says, 
the second coming of Christ will bring the times of the Gentiles to a screeching halt. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Isaiah chapter 9 puts it this way. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings. For the God of heaven hath given to thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell... The beast of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given into thine hand and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee. Not inferior in terms of territory or military power, but in terms of quality of life. Silver, the Medo-Persian kingdom. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron. For as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things. And as iron that breaketh all these shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest that the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. But there shall be in it the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings, these ten kings of the revived Roman Empire, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. You see, the previous kingdoms, while they went out of power, never went out of existence. A lot of Babylon was transmitted to the Medo-Persian Empire. A lot of what the Medes and Persians did, the Greeks picked up on. You've heard that when Christ walked this earth, he walked in the midst of the Greco-Roman Empire. Rome conquered Greece militarily, but Greece conquered Rome culturally, and there was a lot of Greek influence. And then even though Rome fell uh, in the West in 476 BC and in the East in 1453, there was always that dream of her being rebuilt until eventually the Antichrist will try to do so in the tribulation with his revived Roman Empire. So there was a sense in which these kingdoms, though they fell, they always continued some. But when Christ comes back to set up the millennial kingdom, uh, these kingdoms will in no way continue or contribute to the holiness and beauty and love and uh, plenty of that kingdom. Uh, these kingdoms will in no way continue, says verse uh, 45. Excuse me, verse 44. In other words, the kingdom shall not be left to other people. But it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. Remember at the time Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed his dream. The Persian kingdom did not exist. It was merely a Babylonian satrapy or a district under Babylon's control. It would have seemed impossible that a strong Grecian empire could have arisen. Only wandering tribes inhabited the Hellenic states. The city of Rome was only a little town on the banks of the Tiber. And yet, this is all predicted around 550 B.C. 
Two centuries later, in his various accounts of every region of the earth and of innumerable towns and river, the Greek historian Herodotus never gave mention uh, of the Tiber or of the city of Rome. Yet here, amidst the splendor of Babylon, the prophet announces the rise and dominion of this fourth and greater kingdom than Babylon. Wow. In the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, historian Edward Gibbon, who was not a Christian, said, the four empires are clearly delineated and the invincible armies of the Romans are described with as much clearness in the prophecies of Daniel as in the histories of Justin and Diodorus. Now notice in verse 31 as Daniel is telling the dream, he says you saw this mighty metallic image that was bright and awesome. The Schofield Bible says it's noteworthy that Gentile world dominion begins and ends with a great image. It begins with a great image in Nebuchadnezzar's dream and Nebuchadnezzar And he went, he got way out of line here. In chapter 3, he will build a great image. But he'll make it all of gold to himself. Though he was only the head of gold in the image. And he'll demand all men that worship it. And we think of the end times in Revelation 13. In the great tribulation period, the false prophet will set up an image of the Antichrist into the very Jewish temple. And demand that all men take the name of the beast and the mark of the beast and worship the image or else they can neither buy nor sell and will be starved out. Wow, Gentile world dominion in the times of the Gentiles. From 605 BC at the beginning of the Babylon captivity to the very end of the tribulation period leading into the second coming of Christ. It's noteworthy that it both begins and ends with a great image. Man is fundamentally idolatrous at heart. Now in verses 34 and 35, it says that a stone that's cut without hands smites the image on its feet and totally shatters it and it disappears. And it's like the chaff which the wind of the summer threshing floor carries away and it's gone completely. Now, there are a number of Bible interpreters who believe this refers to Christ's first coming. And they don't take what we call a pre-millennial position that uh, after the church age, things will get worse and worse and, and Christ will come back and decisively judge sin and set up his kingdom and make things right. They don't hold that view, so they try to interpret this as somehow Christ's first coming. But as one writer, I think, very obviously points out, the smiting rock did not shatter these earthly kingdoms, that is, these kingdoms that existed in the time of his first coming, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. On the contrary, he was put to death by the sentence of an officer of the Fourth Empire, Rome. This is obviously referring to the second coming. He comes the first time to teach and to suffer and to die and to rise again. He comes the second time to eliminate his enemies and establish his endless empire. It's so important to, I think, keep a dispensational perspective here. And uh, I'm not, I hope, a dispensationalism that drives dispensationist who drives it into the ground. But I do believe the Bible teaches that Christ comes to Israel the first time to teach and suffer and die and rise again, and he's rejected. There's a church age in between where God's carrying out his purposes for the church, the body of Christ, through the Great Commission. When the church is raptured, then God begins the work of Israel again in the tribulation period, and then brings Israel to the point where she'll look on him whom she's pierced, and recognize him as her true Messiah. And then he will, in connection with that, judge her enemies and set up 
an everlasting kingdom that will not be destroyed. Seems to me it's important if we're going to interpret Bible prophecy and the whole Bible properly to work within a framework like that, though some dear brethren take another view. And then we read in verses 46 through 49 that uh, Nebuchadnezzar was impressed, to say the least. <laughs> then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and worshipped Daniel and commanded that they should offer an oblation and sweet odors unto him. The king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldst reveal this secret. Then the king made Daniel a great man. I would just insert reverently here. God made Daniel a great man before the king made Daniel a great man. Then the king made Daniel a great man and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel did not forget in this hour of great blessing the prayers of his three friends who prevailed in prayer with him to reveal the secret and make this change in events possible. Then Daniel requested of the king and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was duly impressed. So overwhelming was the self-authenticating force of this divine interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream that it's hardly surprising to be told in verse 45 that the dream is true and the interpretation thereof sure. It was so apparent, so self-evident. Now, God has predicted the future in an amazing way here. And uh, that leads me to say this. Fulfilled messianic prophecy. That is, prophecies concerning the Messiah's first coming that have been fulfilled in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. If there is such a thing as fulfilled messianic prophecy, and there is. Josh McDowell, in one of his chapters in Evidence of Man's Verdict, lists 29 prophecies that Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled from the Old Testament in a 24-hour period, given the Old Testament reference, the event, and the scripture. You can make a strong case for the fact that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies concerning his first coming, like his birth in Bethlehem, his birth of a virgin, riding in Jerusalem on the uh, back of a donkey on Palm Sunday, uh, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. Uh, then shall the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf and stop it. If you can show that there is such a thing as fulfilled messianic prophecy, and you can, you have thereby prove four powerhouse propositions of the Christian faith. In other words, if fulfilled messianic prophecy is true, and it is, it logically follows that four great truths of the Christian faith have also been demonstrated. And those four great truths are, there exists a great God, for who but he can forecast the future? Did you hear about the Virginia weatherman who recently moved from Virginia to Florida because the weather didn't agree with him? <laughs> you know, even with all of our scientific technology and meteorological marvels, sometimes it's hard. We appreciate the weathermen and how they help us, but sometimes it's hard to get the weather right even two, three days out. But here are amazing prophecies and sometimes amazing detail and some that would seem very unlikely to come true given hundreds of years in advance, and they all come to pass in due season. That's amazing. I believe fulfilled messianic prophecy demonstrates, first of all, that a great God exists. For who but he can forecast the future? I believe it also demonstrates that this great God is Lord of history. For who but he can set in motion such grand designs? carry them out across the wide centuries in the face of mounting human 
and satanic opposition and bring them all to pass in due season. I believe that fulfilled messianic prophecy further shows that God inspired the writers of Holy Scripture. For who but he could pour such brilliance into their spirits? And I believe, fourthly, it proves that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah. For who but he could even begin to answer to this amazing array of ancient announcements? Now note the striking anticipation of the outcome of Gentile dominion in the prostration of supreme human power at the foot of a Jew. Nebuchadnezzar represents Gentile world dominion at its height. But here he's bowing before Daniel. And this anticipates the fact that someday all the world is going to recognize that the Jewish people are God's people. And they're going to want to know more about God through them. Remember that passage in Zechariah 8 that uh, 10 men uh, of the nations will grab hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew and say, uh, let us go up to Jerusalem with you for we've heard that God is with you. And so Nebuchadnezzar on his face before Daniel here, overwhelmed, says one commentator is a picture of how all Gentile dominions someday will recognize God's work with Israel and uh, especially her Messiah. But that's true also of how God wants to honor the faithful in his local church. I thought Kevin put it so well earlier, I think it was Kevin that said this, Colonel Brown, that he thanked God for a faithful people who serve an even more faithful God. I like that, I never quite heard it put that way before, but I, I like that. And, uh, but God's gonna honor his faithful people because God's faithful to his faithful people. Jesus said to the uh, Christians in Philadelphia in Revelation 3.9, he said, behold, they that are of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. God's gonna make sure that not only Christ is honored, and every knee will bow, but God will also recognize that his faithful witnesses were humanity's best friends and telling them the truth, the glorious truth, the eternal truth all along. Well, on May of 2022, my wife said, you gotta see this. There was a documentary on YouTube and it was almost unbelievable. It was the opening ceremony of the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham, England. And they had this big technological, mechanical bull, this great beast. And they had all kinds of choreography and all be, uh, in, in these opening ceremonies. Prince Charles was there and uh, he was representing England and they had a woman who was actually riding this beast and they had, uh, it would move and, uh, and it would, I think, have smoke come out of its mouth or fire and uh, they were actually celebrating this beast in England. Um, I don't think that the um, Lord's coming is very far off and maybe in this, year he will come. But back in Daniel 3, there was another beast, or another great image, I should say, that um, Nebuchadnezzar wanted all of his realm to worship. And in the tribulation period, the Antichrist will want all men to worship his image that will be set up in the temple. This is scary stuff. But as we come to chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar sets up a great gold image, 90 feet tall, uh, nine feet wide on the, uh, in the plain of Dura. And he has a big orchestra, and there's a herald that says, when you hear all the music, 
fall down and worship the, the image which King Nebuchadnezzar set up. And if you don't, you'll be thrown into the burning fiery furnace. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood tall when everybody else bowed down. And uh, they had people accuse them. And they were brought before the king. And uh, he said, if you don't bow down, you're going to be thrown into the burning fiery furnace. I'll give you one more chance. But they answered very nobly and said, we're not careful to answer thee in this matter, O king. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. But if not, if he chooses not to deliver us, it's all the same. He can if he wants to, but if not, it's all the same. Be it known unto you, O king, that we will not worship uh, uh, thy golden image uh, and serve your gods. And so Nebuchadnezzar is furious. He commands that the furnace be heated seven times hotter and uh, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be thrown in. But he's stunned that he says, when he looks into the furnace after it's cooled down some, he says, did we not cast three men bound into the burning fiery furnace? How come I see four men loose, walking around and there's no hurt on them? And the form of the fourth is likened to the Son of God. And they come out and they, there was no sign of any fire or smoke on them. And Nebuchadnezzar proclaims that there's no God that can deliver like this. And uh, nobody should ever speak ill of the God of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, or else. That's kind of a quick summary of the chapter. What effect did chapter 2 have upon Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 3? What effect did chapter 2 have upon Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 3? He honors the God of Daniel at the end of the chapter, but was the impression long-lasting? Yes, ma'am. I was going to say his faith was short-lived. Short-lived. Uh, now he sets up a whole image and demands that everybody worship, and basically it's worshiping him, the head of gold. The whole image is gold. What arrogance. And as uh, Sandy indicated, unbelief has a notoriously short Memory. Another question. Where was Daniel in chapter 3 when his three friends were thrown into the burning fiery furnace? Where was Daniel? Somebody said no one knows, which I would agree with. I was thinking about that because I was asked reading that Daniel part of my devotion. And they said, yeah, no one knows, but he could have been another prophet. He could have been doing something else. Because you wanted the same thing. Why wasn't he thrown in? Yes, people will sometimes ask that. I'm going to deal with that, Lord willing, next week. But I just kind of wanted to see what you think. But uh, that's the answer that Dr. Coles gives in his prophetic outline. He believes that he was on empire business traveling in another part of the empire. And uh, I think that that's a very real possibility. There are a few other possibilities that I'll, I'll share with you too. Thank you. Um, how is Daniel 3 a preview of the Great Tribulation. How is Daniel 3 a prophetic preview of the Great Tribulation? Yes, very much so. Uh, uh, we're going to kill you. We're going to starve you out. Uh, you will be persona non grata if you don't uh, go along with uh, the program and to worship the image of the Antichrist. That's a big part of it. Anything else that comes to mind? Yeah. Yeah. I see five things at least. One is the burning fiery furnace. I believe that's a picture of the suffering and persecution of God's people and God's Jewish people in the tribulation period. The king I believe Nebuchadnezzar here becomes, now I'd like to think he got saved later, but I think here he's a type of the Antichrist who demands all men worship him or else. And then I think the great gold image is a picture of the image of the Antichrist that the false prophet builds in the Jewish temple right after the Antichrist breaks his seven-year covenant with Israel and demands all men that worship it. And I believe that it's this image which Jesus calls the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel in Matthew 24, 15. And then I think the three Hebrew young men represent the faithful Jewish remnant. 
that stand true to God through thick and thin, and God wonderfully blesses their witness like he does the 144,000 Jews in the tribulation period. And then I think Daniel may be a picture of the rapture church who uh, doesn't go through that because he's been, as it were, taken out of the way. Uh, but I think it's a very interesting uh, prophetic preview of the tribulation period. Now, when we talk about these three dear men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, we want to make clear that this is not a children's bedtime story. Shadrach, Meshach, and to bed we go. It's not a children's bedtime story. And it's not, it's not um, a real estate opportunity for investors. Your shack, my shack, and a bungalow. Not talk about that. <laughs> but it is interesting that the head of gold becomes the statue of gold. And Nebuchadnezzar's demanding worship. In chapter 2, we have Nebuchadnezzar's astonishment at the dream and Daniel's interpretation. But in chapter, four, we have, chapter 3, we have Nebuchadnezzar's arrogance. Notice 3, 1 through 6. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits or 90 feet and the breadth thereof six cubits or nine feet. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent to gather together the princes, the governors, and the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces. Somebody said everybody who was anybody was there. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then an herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations and languages, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king hath set up. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. I'm going to talk a little bit about the history here in archaeology, but let me preface my comment by saying, let me just roam into the realm of sociology for just a moment. Sociologists have determined that if a woman wants her marriage to get better and better, the longer it lasts, she should marry an archaeologist. And when they studied it further, they found that the reason was that the older and older she gets, the more and more interested he is in her. But I don't think we should be hard on archaeologists because, after all, they're the only people I know of whose career lies in ruins. But anyway. <laughs> Discovered records show that it was Nebuchadnezzar's custom, not only in Babylon, but in Ur of the Chaldees, to make public the worship of huge images. This would support what we know of the history of those times. By the way, the statue would have been about as tall as a present-day eight-story building. And on the broad plain of Babylon, it would really stand out impressively. Dora was a common name in Mesopotamia for any place that was enclosed by mountains or a wall. Archaeologists have uncovered a large square made of brick six miles southeast of Babylon, which may have been the base for this image. Since this base is at the center of a wide plain, the image's height would have been impressive. Also, its proximity to Babylon would have served as a suitable rallying point for the king's officials. Excavators of Babylon have found what could have been this furnace, and it had the inscription, this is the place of burning where men who worship the gods of Chaldea die by fire. Some years ago, there was an English professor at the University of North Carolina who had all the Christians in the class stand on the first day of class and told them that they were the most narrow-minded people in the world. Wonder what would have happened if she did that with homosexuals and lesbians. We might be seeing the beginnings of much greater persecution to come in Daniel 3.7 we read, 
Therefore, at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and all kinds of music, all the people, the nations, and the languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. They were overwhelmed by the king's command, the awesomeness of the image, and all the sound of music. Talk about peer pressure. But Jesus, in his Sermon on the Plain, warns about peer pressure and says it's far more important to stand alone with God than to go along with the crowd and sow your very conscience, if you need be, just to get there in the eyes of heaven, miserable, wretched approval. Jesus says this in Luke 6, 22 and 23. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you and when they shall separate you from their company and shall reproach you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice ye in that day and leap for joy for great is your reward in heaven and you know what, you're in great company. In the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. He says in verse 26, Woe unto you when all men speak well of you, for thus did their fathers unto the false prophets. Dr. Bob Jones Sr. always used to say, You and God make a majority in any community. I heard a speaker say years ago that before the flood, Noah was in the minority. (laughs) But after the flood, Noah was in the majority. And someday, you and I are going to be too. Someday, according to Philippians 2, when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I recognize many who bow the knee will do so out of unwilling constraint, But the idea is that everybody's someday going to know who our Jesus is. And we will be, in that sense, in the majority. We know who he is right now. And he's precious to us. He's wonderful. He's counselor. He's the mighty God. He's the everlasting father. And he's the prince of peace. But someday that's going to be much more universally recognized. So that when the government is upon his shoulder, Isaiah 9, 6, his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.